0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. I'm not saying that they didn't learn lessons and get more effective later. I'm just saying that they didn't. And the one guy that did, Jim Gant, got crucified.
1: listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Gall. This week we're going to talk about the U.S. Special Operations Forces, the Army Rangers, the Green Berets, Delta Squad, and of course, the Navy SEALs. These are the premier teams of America's global war on terror, the elite tip of the spear that keeps America safe and helps it win hearts and minds. Here to help us understand America's special operations forces and their role in its various wars is former Marine Corps officer Tim Lynch. After retiring from the Marine Corps, Lynch spent seven years in Afghanistan as a contractor. and During those years, he visited every province in the country and gained a working knowledge of Afghan culture. He wrote about the experience and continues to write about the military at his website, Free Range International. Tim, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, no, no worries, Matt, thanks for having me on.
1: So you had a front row seat for the Afghan war and also the US Special Operations Forces role in it. And it's my understanding that these elite soldiers come into a country, they learn the culture, operate with precision and minimize civilian casualties, that they are in fact the best at what they do. Is that right?
0: That is what the uh, what they say,
1: yeah. Well, what what did you see?
0: Well, I, I didn't see that. And, and um, you know, I'm, and I'm not I'm not specifically trying to dog on special forces specifically. I mean, I, I had problems with our entire effort in Afghanistan. But the one thing that you can't say is that they've developed some type of a culture where they have a cultural appropriateness and sensitivity and are able to learn how to operate in an environment. I mean, cause, because because. As I pointed out in my post, I'm just posting on stuff that they've published. I mean, you you're running around coast uh, bare chested. That I, I can't imagine a, a more culturally tone deaf thing to do. And along with some of the videos that uh, and that's in the 60 Minutes thing. I mean, that was granted seven years ago. And, and so my, my whole point has been that the, that they they don't do that. They didn't in Afghanistan. I'm not saying that they didn't learn lessons and get more effective later. I'm just saying that they didn't, and the one guy that did, Jim Gant, got crucified. It was pretty obvious to me that nobody else was interested in duplicating his methodologies, which I, I would contend were.
1: All right, well, let's, let's back up, and I want to give the audience a little context on you and then kind of dive into what you just said there. So you said a lot of interesting things, and I've read um, Gant's wife's book, American Spartan, actually, so we can talk about that a little bit. What was your Marine Corps career like? When did you go in? When did you retire? I went in. I actually
0: uh, was uh, six years in the Navy as a corpsman be- before joining the Marine Corps. And uh, and I had joined the Navy specifically to be a SEAL, something which uh, I-, I-, I don't have color vision, so that I can't pass a dive physical. That was never going to be on the table. And I signed a six-year contract. I was done in 85. In October of 85, I was at Marine Corps OCS. And uh, I went through the basic school, but fortunately, was a, a, got an infantry officer slot. And I had a, a great 15 years in the, in the Fleet Marine Force. But you know, between deploying and coming back and teaching, mostly at Quantico, I, I had an excellent time. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly.
1: And what was your what was the nature of your contract work like in Afghanistan? What were you doing out there?
0: I started out as the uh, project manager on the American Embassy Security Force for the bridge contractor, which was a uh, uh, it, it, was, it was a very strange world back then in 2004, 2005. Once that contract was was up and running, I I I hate I didn't like it myself working at the embassy, and I and I branched out uh, in security work, and then from there uh, into aid work. And so uh, my last four years there, I was entirely on the implementation side. Um, and and again, we were direct implementers. We were not. We did not have gigantic compounds. We did not have armored cars. We did not have Western security guys. We provided our own security. Um, we wore local clothes, we drove local vehicles and we were you know we worked at kinetic areas, never had never failed to complete a project. never.
1: That sounds a lot like what the dream mission of the of the some of the special operations forces is supposed to be, right? Like they're supposed to go in and wear local clothes and make those kinds of relationships. And that's not what that is not what you saw.
0: No, no, that's what they did when they first came into 2001 and 2002. And many of the people that were in this uh, the same job I was were former special forces guys. And that's exactly and Canadians. That's exactly what they said. But by the time you got big army in there and you started with uh, two concurrent operations, you've got Enduring Freedom, which is hunting terrorists. And you've got uh, ISAF, which is supposedly standing up and pacifying the country. And the Enduring Freedom guys, they would uh, they would just keep on doing these high profile night raids. And In, inside of people's uh, uh, AO, that had no idea they were doing there and left them f- with the fallout. This happened time and time again. And if you look at the most recent study from the from the army on uh, on green on blue uh, um, uh, deaths, you know, Afghans shooting Americans, the number one reason cited is, is hostility generated by night raids. My contention was it never worked because you never seemed to dent the Afghan leadership. It doesn't seem to work that way to me. And so I was very I've been I was very negative about that, although I've got to say it's not like those guys don't know what they're doing when they pull off a raid. I mean, they're awfully good at it, but they rarely they rarely inflict casualties. But when they do, it's invariably the wrong kind. And it's and it's uh, and it was a consistent bone of contention with the Afghans to this day. And, and I just don't think it was wise, you know, from from my perspective, looking at I was on the outside.
1: What do you mean by it was the wrong kind of casualties? What are the right kind of casualties?
0: right kind of casualties would be an armed guy that you're going in to get. It would not be an armed neighbor or a teenage boy or somebody else who's rushing out of the compound with a rifle because you're in the middle of the Pashtun Hill country. And that's what people do at night when they start hearing gunfire. Those are the wrong kind of casualties. and, and, And we don't know how many of those were inflicted. Estimates go from several thousand, which, you know, from humanitarian organizations to what you can piece together from Pentagon reports. And they admit to you know, inflicting casualties at times that uh, were, were not appropriate. They hit a compound right down the road from me in, in, in Nangarhar where they shot a, a member of parliament's son and, and some other guy that was responding to the thing. It was right. I, I remember that clearly. And the local people were pissed. They would close the road throwing rocks for days. And for guys like us that are out there, that's not good because I can't move around when, it, when the locals are that host, hostile, uh, even though I try not to look like an American. It's, I'm not fooling anybody once I step outside my car.
1: Right. I want, I want to give, paint the pictures for the listeners here just a little bit, and I want you to correct me if I screw any of this up, but in, in various parts of more rural Afghanistan, it's kind of like these these small enclaves or communities that are almost like little fortresses, right, where a whole family, kind of, like a whole extended family and community lives.
0: It'd be, it'd be clan. It'd, it'd be clan with multi-gen different families comprising uh, in that area, yeah.
1: Right, and they and those those clans typically are responsible for their own security. So that's why you know a prime minister's son would be would be there with a rifle. And if someone comes in the middle of the night, then they're going to respond.
0: Right, right. Member of parliament, just a
1: oh, member of parliament. Yeah, my my apologies.
0: The female member from Nangar. But yeah, that's not a that's not an unrealistic assumption. Oftentimes, I have to admit, they're neutralized by the by by our guys who are that good that they'll they won't shoot them, but they'll just disarm them. Which is, you know, I'm I'm not saying that that the SF guys don't know what they're doing. I'm saying that the the specific incidents I cited, they sure as hell didn't seem to, and that the overall tactics weren't working. I mean, they didn't help out anybody, as as far as you can tell from from what you see today, as on on you know in Afghanistan. And we're going to be there a long time, but yeah, that's that's just that that was just my take on it. And so as unpopular as it is to start dogging out SF guys, particularly for somebody that joined the Navy to be a SEAL, that was never gonna happen. Um, uh, I I don't wanna be perceived as as just like, you know, uh, uh, dumping negatives on these guys. But when they first showed up in the Hellman, they, they offer a reward for former Taliban. And all those guys had gone home and turned in their weapons, right? And the first thing that happens is, like, the local guys, they like they just <laughs> grabbed two orphans. I'm not kidding you. Teenage orphans off the street of Goresh and throw them in and said, these guys are Taliban. And, and nobody figured that out until they got back to to, to Gidmo, where I understand they didn't want to leave. They never had it so good. So, so you start with that, and then you start with the raids that happened in Maiwand, uh, in 2003, where where you're where you're taking out your shooting leaders, they're dying in captivity due to uh, interrogation techniques that were inappropriate. Granted, all this stuff got fixed. All of it got fixed. But what the Afghan what we just said in in report to Congress is we want Afghanistan to be where the Taliban have laid down their arms and are sort of cooperating and the level of violence is down. That's where it was in 2003 before we started cranking up. The enduring freedom operations trying to trying to get al qaeda and high level taliban guys. So I, I don't understand why we did that because it's very difficult to trace.
1: Let's talk about um, Jim Gant then because I think this really speaks to I think his story specifically really speaks to what we're talking about because he had a very he was a special forces guy he was Delta right.
0: Yeah, no, he wasn't, wasn't, a, wasn't a Delta guy. Um, he had a, a couple of teams, and, and when he was brought back in, just as Petraeus was coming in, right around that time frame, uh, he was given National Guardsmen, and I think one other SF guy that he selected, to go out into uh, Kunar province and try to live amongst the tribes and uh, and get some cooperation out there.
1: Right, so di- explain, he, he kind of had a pitch. He had written this document about how he thought we should be conducting the war in Afghanistan and how we could win it. Right. Uh, And tell us a little bit about that.
0: Okay, so basically what he was saying is uh, uh, something that is a theme of mine in the blog. He cannot provide protection to the people unless you're there with them. You know, just patrolling the the village at night, going back to the fob isn't working. It was a a well-worn concept because of the Iraq surge. But he wanted to go into these villages and actually live with them, where essentially he's turning over his safety to his guys to what would be perceived, particularly in Kunar province, as being a, a, a bad guy tribes. And so he, he had built a relationship with, uh, with uh, a, one of the elders, a very powerful elder in the Muhammad tribe. He moved in with the Muhammad tribe, had his now wife uh, with him, um, you know, and, and right off the bat, he's doing things unconventional. He, he patrols like they patrol. If they don't have body armor, he doesn't have body armor, which in the mountains of Kunar is smart. He dumps machine guns on these guys in the overwatch position. is not supposed to do that. But he basically, he, he basically goes in with his tribe. He gets so tight with them that he then goes on. To go to the Safi tribe and, and Kay, this is where the army has been getting his ass kicked for ten years. Not at that point, yeah, about seven. Kay, and moves in with those guys, and and which to me was unbelievable. You know, I I went all over Afghanistan, but I would not go near near uh, uh, any anywhere, anywhere near that particular tribe because I mean they were bad bad friggin' nukes. And he goes in there and gets those guys. He has elders from from Nagahar and from the other side of coming in, asking them how they can set that up. And I think what he's doing is working. Unfortunately, the having his his girlfriend with him. Not not allowed. He's given away uh, an ordinance to the Afghans that he shouldn't be doing, according to protocol. Um, he he's got an alcohol but everybody did out there. I'm not gonna get too concerned about that. And uh, he basically gets busted and and it, it's damaging uh, how they bust him. They, they say he was was not uh, cognizant of his own men's own safety because he allowed him to patrol like Afghans did. I, I would tell you that's safer than than being up in those mountains in body armor. That, that's just my personal experience, you know, but but uh, you know it, to, to be honest, I, I know Jim. I saw Jim and him when they were coming through. I saw him at the Taj. I'm particularly fond of him, and and I think that that was the way to go. It duplicated what we were doing on the uh, reconstruction side.
1: Do you think that uh, his wife was a reporter? Um, do you think that that made leadership nervous too?
0: No, I think the fact that he was out there, that she was even out there, they didn't know. She wasn't any reporter; she was a prominent reporter. And I think yes, I think yes, that's going to make things different if she got, you know, if, if somehow her body turns up in the middle of Cunard up there in the Chalke district. That's going to raise some heads. But her experience was no different from you know I was I was I was working on Jalalabad I had a place called the Taj you can see all this in the if if anybody's followed the blog it was lots of internationals there to include a an MIT Fab Lab run run by a PhD student named Amy Sun and she would tell me the same thing after. After her and the MIT girls got together with the Nangarhar University girls, she said, "You know, if anything you want to know, just ask these girls. They'll tell you everything." So the fact that Anne was sitting there getting some very valuable insights from the women was consistent with 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 my experience. I mean, having a, a females around in the reconstruction business certainly augmented our situational awareness and allowed us to move safer.
1: Alright, you are listening to War College. We are talking with Tim Lynch about special operations forces in Afghanistan and kind of Afghanistan in general. We will be right back after a break. Hello, welcome back to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. We are on with Tim Lynch, former Marine Corps officer and a contractor for seven years in Afghanistan. We are talking about special operations forces in Afghanistan and uh, what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. Uh, so right before the break, we were talking about women kind of giving you, you know, human intelligence. And that's something that uh, I, I have heard from from other people that have been there, that the, the women that were serving along as interpreters uh, really helped give uh, everyone situational awareness. So is there anything that special operations forces are doing right in Afghanistan that you see?
0: well well the, uh, the, the the one thing they 've done right is the training of the Afghan commandos the afghan special special forces the people of Afghanistan hold them in very very high regard and they 're essentially acting as the fire department for Afghanistan you know when when things get heated in the helmet they 're down there when the isis acts up they 're in the Nangarhar. they 're very proficient they 're very good they have special forces uh, uh, trainers with them embedded with them to access all the enablers America brings the aircraft and now artillery's over there too i I, I note. So, yeah, they, they do that very well. But, you know, that, but I again, I've got to believe there's not that many of those guys doing it. And those guys that are doing it are guys that have learned the bitter lessons from from the guys in the past. The so one one thing American military is not is is, uh, is averse to learning lessons and special forces guys adopt faster than most. So that, yeah, they're doing a great job at, at that.
1: All right. This kind of begs the question to me, then are are the special forces stretched thin? You know, these are supposed to be the elite warriors. There's not supposed to be many of them, but they're, you know, if they're they're training and they're doing most of the nighttime raids and they're effectively, you know, fighting the war, is there a worry that we're going to, we're not, we're just not going to be able to train as many of them as we need?
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's, that is certainly something that's been in the press. I'm, I have no insight to offer on that. I, I would imagine were, were I the, uh, the special forces guys, I would be shunning mostly National went into Afghanistan, out of particularly out of Utah, they're very proficient at that kind of thing. While well, you save your, your 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 heavy hitters for all the work they're doing in Syria, and Iraq, and, and we don't know what they're doing, and and, and it shoot in Africa too, Somalia, and and so who who knows? Are they stretched thin? They've got to be stretched thin, P- particularly the support guys, the uh, the Task Force One Hundred and Sixty helicopter guys. I mean, they they can't have a ton of those, but yeah, they're stretched they're stretched thin. So. But my, my point about what they're doing right is with the Afghan commandos, because they are stretched thin, I don't think you've got like an enduring freedom, American-directed counterterrorism thing. I think the Special Forces guys are doing what the commandos are thinking they ought to be doing. And that's a whole different thing than night raids, if you, if you follow me. Because they, they don't have enough I, – I, I can't imagine they've got enough capability to be doing that over there now.
1: Why don't you like the, the night raids? What's your criticism of the night raids?
0: And for years, I would hear from my friends uh, as, as they rotated in, they're like, Timmy, you, you got to hear the traffic between the local Taliban and the guys in Quetta or the guys, uh, uh, um, or, or, and, you know, pick your, your Pakistani city, you're sure. Uh, uh, they're panicking because they're getting they're, they're hammered. And to which I said, yeah, but, you know, they seem to be gaining momentum everywhere. I'm not too damn sure that that's that's right. And it sort of takes away from the Afghan's ability to run a little IO ops on their own, if 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 they they're not stupid people, and if they think that's what they they, they want to be hearing is panic calls back and forth, I bet they can generate a lot of them, and they might not all be legit. And and I'm sure there's ways of differentiating the wheat from the chaff, you know. I mean, I know we're good at this kind of stuff, but I never saw on the ground any indication that stripping out these senior guys slowed down the momentum anybody or, or anybody anywhere that that I was
1: aware of. So it sounds like we're just fighting this war all wrong, in your opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would. Y- y- yes, I, I would. I would go back to 2003 and say, just leave it like it is. You know, if you wanted to put an enduring freedom presence in here, it needed to be a lot smaller than it was. But once once you had Bagram and I mean, once you had been Laden cornered and everybody was running all over the country. You know, in comes all this this headquarters uh, in Bagram, and once a headquarters gets set up, it's got to do something, and they start doing things. You know, I would contend that 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 mission Pat on was nonsense, driving all around the villages of Coats and like clearing them and saying, oh, this village is clear. Jeez, I mean, because that that's a basic misunderstanding of what it is you can expect to see and what it is you're going to see. Uh, it's and it's just a waste of time. It's it's it is it's battlefield geometry. It's not focusing on any particular. Uh, uh, enemy or any capability or, or degrading anybody in any significant way.
1: So, what do you think is going to happen in the immediate future? You know, we're talking about sending 4,000 more soldiers there, right? Right. Uh, that's, in my opinion, I, I've, I'm a long time Afghanistan watcher. I don't think that those 4,000 soldiers are going to make a huge difference. What's your opinion on that?
0: Uh, well you've got you've got you've got a good sized training element down in the helmet you've got another good sized training element in Nangar. Now you've got the 82nd airborne flying in artillery and quick response units okay so now you've got another battalion that's going to be sitting uh, out there in, in the helmet who's just nothing but quick response which means i think the marines are going to be getting out and as the 101st airborne have done an action obviously because they they took hejis they're going to get out and they're going to offer their enablers and try to keep this thing alive under the guise that the longer this limps along, the the more likely it is the Taliban are going to offer some kind of mixed power sharing type uh, ending to this thing. You know, the, the Taliban do not have the strength to win. They're not going to win. I think that's what we're going to do is just string this along. And if you listen to the Pentagon, you listen to a general Dunford, like it was on a national press club last week, he'll sit there and say, this is part of an overall strategy to support countries that are having problems with extremism. And we'll, we'll, we'll help them out to try to try to drive it down. But, uh, you know, nobody's talking victory. Just, I think that's what you're going to see. I think we'll be there for years, and, and it will be artillery units and grunts out there. And every once in a while, you're going you're to lose a few of them. It's just, it's inevitable.
1: That sounds a lot like what the Taliban strategy is, right? Just stay there, and eventually the invaders will leave.
0: It's exactly right. Yeah. But they keep on screwing up like they did with that bomb in, uh, uh, in Kabul that one that went off outside of the, the green zone. They keep on doing stuff like that, and it's and it's just going to be negative pressures. Plus, you've got Taliban fighting Taliban in Herat last year, in Goresh this year, uh, the, the Taliban fighting ISIS fighting Taliban. So there's all kinds of scenes you can be playing if you're going to sit out there and, work, and do the weight game. Quite frankly, and, and I haven't always felt this way, but as I as I understand what it is, I, as I believe I understand what it is they're doing, I say the odds are that, that, that eventually we can peter this thing out like that, but it's a long haul. And what you can't afford is to get a unit surrounded and annihilated, whether that's a squad, a platoon. I, I don't think they could do it to a company. But if they, if they catch like a platoon or or, or, and, 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 and wipe them out, that, you're going to have a hard time keeping America uh, people there. And that's what they're going to try to do. That, that will be the, the Taliban strategy.
1: So it's basically keep this thing going and avoid high-profile military disasters.
0: That's exactly right. Odds are over time, if you believe the Rand Corporation, odds are you're going to win.
1: What about outside influences like Pakistan? People that are lending material support to the Taliban?
0: See, that's, that's and again, you've got to operate under the assumption, and this is the only assumption I can make, that Madison Tillerson and, and, and Dumford, they know what they're doing. It's not like they don't know, right? Everybody knows. The question is is what are we going to do and, and how is this going to going to go forward and and it's a it's strictly a diplomatic issue it's there's nothing on the military side that can be done right so so that's that's diplomacy and we've got to see how that, how the heck that shakes out because I'm not so sure after all these years of watching the ISI that one hand necessarily knows what the other's doing i I think there's factions inside there and they got problems controlling that that is my personal feeling
1: I think you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah, and, and that's not an original theory. I mean, that's that, obviously, but, but, uh, but yeah, it would be interesting, but there's got to be pressure there. There's got to be pressure applied. The only thing we have in our advantage is, without so much manpower in there, the uh, logistical tail that they've been feeding on now for 17 years is growing a little bit smaller, and, and hopefully one would assume more efficient.
1: All right, Tim Lynch, thank you for coming on War College and telling us about Afghanistan and the America's Special Operations Forces. We really appreciate it.
0: Hey, no, I appreciate you having me on. I, I Have a great day. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this week's show. War College was created by Jason Fields and Craig Hedick. Matthew Galt hosts the show and wrangles the guests. It's produced by me, Bethel Habtay. Thanks for listening.